I mentioned this morning that in 2 Kings 5, you have two individuals who become the focal point of the events that take place. And both of those individuals are important in terms of their expectations. They have a certain way that they think God ought to operate. And this morning we looked at Naaman. And as a reminder of some of the things that we considered with Naaman this morning, uh, we saw that in, in, in 2 Kings 5, Naaman comes to Elisha for healing. He brings this letter from the king of Syria. He comes with an entourage, with his horses and his chariots. He comes with a significant amount of wealth to be able to have this healing and None of it goes according to his expectations. Elisha does not come out and meet him. Elisha does not stand before him. Elisha does not wave his hand over the leprous spot. He just sends out a messenger that says, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And so Naaman, rather than being joyful about that, is angry about that because his expectations were not met. It takes his servants to say, um, wasn't that good news that <laughs> you were told? And we talked about then how God challenges our expectations so that we would humble ourselves before him. You have in verse 14, he goes and he dips in the Jordan then seven times. He is restored like the flesh of a child and he was clean as he does everything according to the word of the Lord. In, in verse 15 of 2 Kings 5, you see, he now returns to the man of God, he and all of his company. We only got an inkling of that with horses and chariots. Here it becomes clear. Naaman's got an entourage with him. He and all of his company now return to Elisha. He came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Now remember, we talked about this is a significant amount of, of, of wealth, 700 and 50 pounds of silver approximately, 150 pounds of gold approximately. And in our day, in our economy, you'd be standing around $5.5 million as being put before him. And so Naaman says, man, look, that you, you did what you said here. Please take this. Here is my gift to you. Take all of this wealth. Verse 16 Elisha says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And you will notice the end of verse 16 says, Naaman is urging him to take it. No, you have to take this. You can just imagine, it's from the king of Syria. Here, take it. You know, you've, you've done a miraculous work. You've done a great thing. You've healed me. Take this wealth. We're told there at the end of verse 16, that he refused. Elisha absolutely takes an oath before God as the Lord lives. I am not going to take a dollar of this. I'm not going to have any of it. With this cleansing, as we alluded to this morning, verses 17 and 18, you have Naaman's asking 
for some dirt to take with him because he's not going to worship the idols of Syria anymore so that he can worship the Lord as best he can. He also asks and says, please forgive because the king is going to go into the house of Rimen and he's going to be bowing before them and I've got to hold his arm and prop him up and doing that. But I'm not worshiping that God. I am worshiping only the true and living God. And Elisha says, Understood. We, 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 we get that. And so it ends then when verse 19 and he says to him, go in peace. The, the, the dialogue between Elisha and Naaman is over and you want verse 19 to be the end. And they all lived happily ever after. Elisha has healed him, showing that there is a truly a prophet in Israel, the true and living God. Naaman is healed. He can go back to Syria and he can show the great works of God. All right, glad you came. Verse 19. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him to get something from him. Now, this is an important observation to see about what's about to unfold. And I want you to see the motivation that is exposed in Gehazi, because I want you to see what he says. He says, my master has spared this Syrian Naaman. You know, remember who Naaman is. Naaman is a mighty, valiant warrior that God, we are told, is actually giving him success as he fights and defeats the people of Israel. He has been successful so much so that, remember, we were told he'd even captured some of the Israelites. That's how he came to find out about Elisha in the first place. This is somebody who has been leading these attacks, causing difficulties to Israel. And notice that Gehazi looks at this and says within himself, this is not right. The NIV reads, Elisha was too easy on Naaman or let this Aramean Naaman off lightly or New Revised Standard, he let him off too lightly. I want you to see the motivation that is being observed here is that he says, here is this, this Naaman who is a terrible person. He is a Syrian. He has wreaked havoc on Israel. And the least you could have done was get something out of him. And you let him off the hook. You let him off too lightly. You have spared this Naaman. And so Gehazi thinks, I'm going to do something about that. I'll get something out of him. I'll be able to get something out of him in this moment. And I want you to consider this curious contrast that is being exposed to us at this moment. Because remember, in the first 14 verses, we observe that this captured Israelite servant girl in seeing the condition of Naaman, wants to help. Oh, I wish that you could get to know the prophet in Israel because he would be able to heal you. And by contrast, Gehazi, 
the servant of Elisha wants to exploit him. This isn't about helping him, but we got to get something out of him. I'm going to get make him pay for what he's done. He should pay up because of who he is and what he's done. And so in Gehazi's mind, this is about exploitation. I'm going to get him to pay because my master has led him off lightly. And so we are told in verse 21 that Gehazi follows Naaman and Naaman saw that someone was running after him. And so he gets down off his chariot and meets him, asks, is all well? Verse 22, he says, all is well. My master has sent me to say there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. So interesting. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to go get something out. So you can imagine the scene as Gehazi is trying to catch up and runs after him. And Naaman observes somebody's following him. And so he stops, waits for him. What's the matter? Has something gone wrong? Oh, everything's fine. It just concoct a story here for a moment a couple of sons of the prophets showed up and you know they could use a couple of changes of clothes and and and, you know a talent of silver that would be helpful as well he's not asking for much trying to pull the math into our economy today you're only talking about maybe a year's wages is all that's being asked around sixty thousand dollars ish just a talent of silver you know, nothing big, but, you know, we, we need to do that. And so you'll notice that with, with Naaman, he says in, in verse 23, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up the two talents of silver in the two bags and with two changes of clothes and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. Please notice verse 24. And when he came to a hill... He took them from their hand and put them in his house and he sent them in away and they departed. Oh. Yeah. Devious. <laughs> he concocts the story. Oh, needs some, some money here. Needs some changes of clothes. But before he gets where anybody can see him, he, okay, now you guys go on back and just go ahead. I'll, I'll take care of it from here and stashes it all into his house at, at, at this moment. And so in asking for things, you get a sense of of what he's looking for. I'm going to make him pay, and I'm going to be the beneficiary of that. He has gotten off too lightly, and so why don't I go ahead and benefit from this? So he stashes this in his house. But notice what happens. Verse 25. After he hides the money and hides the clothes, and after the servants have Naaman have departed. Verse 25, he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? (laughs) Now, here's your confession opportunity. (laughs) Oh, Gehazi, you haven't been around this morning. (laughs) Where have you been? You now suddenly reappear as, as a servant of mine. Okay, Well, what's been going on? Where did you go? Here is your grand moment, Gehazi, to say. Well, you know what happened? I just thought we needed to go get something out of him. Verse 25, Gehazi said, your servant went nowhere. 
I would think by now, Gehazi probably knows. That's a dumb answer. (laughs) You know who you are dealing with with Elisha and the miracles that he's done. He has wielded the power of Elijah. He has done amazing things. He has been aware of people's hearts. And so here is this moment where he is being challenged by Elisha. Hey, where did you go? Oh, why you haven't been anywhere. You know, I've just been milling around in the back. Verse 26, but he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. He went out from his presence a leper like snow. I want you to listen and consider what you hear Elisha saying to Gehazi at this moment. To say there in verse 26, is it a time to accept silver and clothing Olive orchards and vineyards, flocks and herds, male and female servants. I want you to think about what he's saying. Was this the time to get what you could get out of Naaman? Or to state it another way, was this really the time for retribution? Was this the time to make Naaman pay? Was this the time to get your pound of flesh out of him? It's a very interesting question. Was this the time for silver and for clothing and for service? Was it the time to get that out of him? Is that really what we wanted to do? To state this another way, I believe Elisha's question is, is this the time to act like every other worldly person? Or is this the time to show the grace and the mercy of God? That, I think, is what's bound up in the statement and bound up in what he's trying to get Gehazi to think about. In all that has just happened in the healing of this Syrian, and he has humbled himself before God and he has listened to the voice of God and dipped in the Jordan seven times, has come back in gratefulness and has said he is going to devote himself to God and will no longer participate in idolatrous worship, is now the time for us to try to bleed him of whatever he has? Is it time to try to take whatever you can get out of him? I think that's the essence of what Elisha's trying to get Gehazi to consider. The issue that we see Gehazi have ultimately with this motivation is really a common problem in scriptures. It is a common problem that people have with God. That you have Gehazi upset about the generous nature of God. That's how this whole thing started. Is Gehazi is saying in his mind, you let him off too lightly. You spared him. You should have got something out of him. You should have made him pay. He's a Syrian commander. 
He's a warrior and a fighter. Shouldn't he have to pay for what he's done? At minimum, he should have been paying something. Pay off all that silver and gold. And that's why Elisha's saying, is that really what we should be asking right now? Is it really the time for that? But if you think about what Gehazi says, think about how often that comes up as an issue in Scripture. You might quickly think about someone who jumped immediately to my mind, who had the very same problem, the very same issue, Jonah. Jonah talked just like that. When God had told Jonah that I wanted him to go to Assyria and preach to the people of Nineveh. And then they end up repenting. And here is Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. The whole essence of the book of Jonah pivots around the idea of Jonah saying, I knew you were going to forgive them and I don't like that. You need to get something out of them. I'm upset that you did not bring disaster on them. And that's what he goes about telling them is he basically quotes Exodus 34 there. I knew that you were bounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. And God said that of himself, the very words himself. The problem that you see is being upset by the mercy and the generosity of God. Gehazi has that problem. Jonah has that problem. You remember Jesus told some parables along the same lines. One that we probably know very well. We often call it the parable of the lost son is parable of these lost things of the sheep and the coin and you come to the lost son and you might remember how it unfolds that when the son comes back the father he slaughters this fatted calf and there is this huge party that ensues over it but when the older brother is asked to come into the feast and enjoy that the younger brother has come in his response is that this younger brother this son of yours devoured your property with prostitutes, but you killed the fatted calf. Same problem. How dare you have a party when look at what he's done? Well, that's what Gehazi said. You spared him. You let him off the hook. You were too light with him. How could you possibly do that? And the older brother says the same words. One more parable, you go on and on, where God's trying to warn us about this kind of heart is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I'll set up the parable, then we'll look at the conclusion. In the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells a parable about 
a master who hires laborers to come into his vineyard to work. And he hires them early in the morning. He sets a particular wage out and says, you come in and I'll give you this wage. But then around 9 a.m. he hires some more. And around noon he hires some more. And in the mid-afternoon he hires some more. And then as you're almost getting to dusk, he even hires some more. And what we are told is that the master gives everyone the same amount. He starts by paying the ones who came in last and gives them a certain amount, which is the same amount that was given to the 3 p.m. workers, which was the same amount that was given to the noon workers, the same amount that was given to the 9 a.m. workers, the same amount to the workers who'd been there all day. Notice how the story unfolds. In verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only an hour, but you have made them equal to us and have borne the burden of the day of scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Now listen, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. You see how God's always touching on this button He's always talking about this issue of begrudging the generosity of God, being upset at the mercy of God. Jonah outright says it. I am angry that you have forgiven them. You might as well go ahead and kill me. And then Jesus comes along and tells parables to say, and that attitude had not changed. I think it is important to see the issue as it plays out in terms of Gehazi and how the master has framed the problem. Because it is easy for us to look at this and go, I cannot believe that God would be so merciful and God would be so generous. Now, here's the thing. I don't suppose that in our minds we ever say, I begrudge the generosity of God. (laughs) Or how dare God ever be so merciful? I would dare say, I don't know that I've ever thought the words of Jonah. I knew that you were abounding in steadfast love, and I'm angry about that. I mean, it's an unbelievable thing that that Jonah confesses. But I want us to consider for a moment that when we believe that they need to get what's coming to them. They should cough up their pound of flesh for what they've done. That's the mentality where Gehazi is at in this moment. And the problem is, the issue is what we are saying is that we are going to take the place of God and what that person has done is unforgivable. 
Gehazi is saying about Naaman, what he's done is unforgivable. You let him off the hook. It was too light. You spared him. What's the older brother saying? You let him off the hook. What he did was unforgivable. He took your inheritance and blew it on prostitutes. What's the early workers saying about the late workers? God, what you've done is unforgivable. It ain't right. How dare you be so generous? How could you possibly do that? This happens so many times in the scriptures. You might remember a very uh, notable scene as well as Jesus uh, enters into a town and he's always eating with tax collectors and sinners. But there's a notable time where he tells this shorter man named Zacchaeus who was up on a tree. Hey, come on down because I'm going to your house to eat with you today. And the crowd groans. You've got to be kidding me. That guy's a scoundrel. That guy's terrible. And you may remember Zacchaeus like, if I've wronged anybody, I'll pay back fourfold. So, and Jesus said, salvation's come to his house. And what's the crowd saying? You've got to be kidding me. Not that guy. Not that guy. Salvation can't come to his house. Naaman, he can't be cleansed like that for free. You've got to be kidding me. The younger son gets to come back into the house after what he's done. You've got to be kidding me. That's not right. It's unforgivable. It can't happen. And I won't have it. We need to have him punished. There needs to be a pound of flesh paid. What we're ultimately doing when we think like that is we are declaring that somebody doesn't deserve God's mercy. I believe I can boil that down to Gehazi right here. Naaman doesn't deserve that. He should at least pay for what he's received. He should pay. You spared him. How dare you? And ultimately what is being stated about each of these people is ultimately that what they've done is unforgivable. Now, let me make it hurt for a minute. You ever thought that way about somebody? We might not say in our minds, boy, I'm not, I am so, not so upset that God would be so generous and merciful. Okay, we don't think like that. But you ever said, I can't ever forgive that. I can't forgive what they've done. What they've done is unforgivable. They need to pay for what they've done. And I want us just to ask within ourselves, who is it that we are unwilling to forgive until we make them pay? And I hope that we would see that that's not the way God operates. That you can have somebody who has done extraordinary wrong who has turned away from God, who has been like the lost son and has completely spit in the face of God, thrown away the blessings of God, and then they come back. And is our mentality going to be, well, that's not right. They should pay for what they've done. 
You're letting them off the hook. You're sparing them. And I want you to see that we serve a God who doesn't look at things like that. And yet it's so easy for us to do that. Who do you think you need to make pay for what they've done against you? Do you need to make your spouse pay by your anger? As you lash out against them, you're going to get out of them what they ought because they've done you wrong. Or a family member, co-worker, neighbor. You've wronged me, and so I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to be the one to do something about it. Sometimes we have the tendency to think that we just are not going to let people off the hook. We're going to make them pay for what they've done. Rather than having the heart of God. And what Elisha says here, I think, is so important and applies so strongly to us. Is it's not a time, Gehazi, for a selfish grab. But it is a time to show the glorious mercy of God. I mean, do think about what that looks like. For Naaman to say, I'm going to try to pay you. And if if Elisha goes, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Hey, no, that's not really gracious. That's payment for services, right? Uh, I was healed. I'll pay that amount. There's no grace there. That's just payment for services. Is it really a time for a selfish grab? Or are not these the great moments for us to display the glorious mercy of God? Isn't it a time for us to show mercy to each other because God has been so merciful to us? The times are we're seeking the pound of flesh and we're going to make them pay and they shouldn't, they shouldn't get that. That's not right are the times that we forget that God has shown that exact same kind of mercy to us. Those are the times we forget that. You want to, when you read Luke 15, slap that older brother and say, how can you not be happy about one who returns? Why do you think you have to be the one to punish? Why can't you rejoice in mercy? Why do you have to be the one To try to get something out of him. And what is particularly interesting about this moment is the true contrast. Naaman, the Gentile Syrian commander, receives mercy. Gehazi, the Israelite servant of the man of God, receives judgment. The first will be last and the last will be first, just as Jesus said. What an amazing reversal. In fact, do you remember that Jesus capitalized on that? 
Jesus capitalized on that in Luke chapter 4 and verse 27 where he's talking to the Pharisees and he reminds reminds them and says, you know, there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha. There was lots of lepers in Israel. None of them were cleansed. Except Naaman the leper. He humbled himself. He understood. And that is the heart that God is looking for. I just want to end by just asking some questions for your own introspection. How do we look at sinners? How do we look at the lost? How do we look at people who have harmed us? How do we look at people who have wronged us? How do we look at people who have failed us, who have let us down? How do we look at people who have failed God? What is going to be our perspective? Do we expect them to be worthy of our forgiveness and our kindness? Until they jump certain hoops and do certain things, only then will then I show my mercy and kindness and relent. I brought up anger because I think that might be the most frequent way we practice this. I am going to be angry with you until you meet a certain level of expectations or requirements before me. And only then will I peel off my wrath and show you kindness. Thank God he doesn't do that to us. That you see a God who is overflowing in generosity. We are to be the ones who are at the forefront of mercy. We are the ones who should be reaching out with the hope of God, with the picture of forgiveness, because we understand the mercy of God in our own lives. That we would never degenerate down into a mentality like Gehazi or the laborers in the vineyard or the older son or like Jonah. Who it's so easy to do that as we become uncomfortable with God and we look out in the world and oh, look at all the terrible things that they're doing. And so we have no compassion anymore. And there's no extending the generosity of God and seeking with the mercy of God. It's just wanting to be punitive. Make them pay. And we just simply ask, do we really believe the words of Peter that God truly desires that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance? That God really wants that. And it's not about us putting obstacles in the way or making people pay for what they've done. For all the hurts that we might have, and for all the stabs in the back that we might ever endure, it's not about making them pay. It's hoping that they will have a name and moment, humble themselves before God, and serve the living God. I'll end with Elisha's words. Is it really a time 
for silver and money, clothing and animals? Is it really a time for that? Or is it a time to display to that person the grace of God? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, it can be so difficult, Lord, for us to allow for you to be the judge of all things. God, it can be so easy for us to hold things against people, to make them pay for what they've done, to make them hurt for how they've wronged us, to vent our anger because of things they've said and done. God, I pray that you would forgive us for when we've behaved that way. Forgive us for when we think we are letting people off lightly as if we have any say in it. God, forgive us for how many times we can lack mercy towards sinners in this world. Lack mercy in our relationships that we have with our spouses, our children, our parents. That we lack mercy with our friends, with our brethren, with our neighbors and co-workers. God, forgive us for how often we think we need to be the writer of wrongs and that we don't leave these things in your hands. God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith and encourage our hearts to be people who not only appreciate your mercy, but display it. That we not only appreciate your generosity, but display it. Help us to be a better reflection of who you are and your desire for all people to come back and that we would never at all shudder for anyone, no matter what they've done, to come back to you. And God, help us to be peacemakers. Help us to facilitate reconciliation in our relationships. Help us to be the one to bridge the gaps just as you bridge the gap to us. And forgive us for when we fail to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to sing an invitation song now. And we invite you to consider where you stand before God, that you serve a gracious God. And so often we fail to just reflect that grace. Uh, Gehazi hmm, truly missed something powerful about what God was doing with Naaman. All he could see was the sin rather than the glory of God. May we never do that. And if you can respond to God's invitation today, that your opportunity now is to turn away from your sins. Baptize for the forgiveness of your sins and follow him faithfully. We want you to do that now. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?